We are here because we are dedicated to helping the entire CrossFit community. Determined to elevate coaches, box owners, athletes, and everything in between, we believe that this mission will begin right here, right now. While this time and this goal begins with you, our hope is that you take this fire ignited within you and weave it into your own life with the same unrelenting passion to give those you have the privilege of coming in contact with the best hour of their day. Welcome back to another episode of Best Hour of Their Day. We are your hosts, Jason Ackerman, Jason Fernandez. Today, we're chatting about opening a box in 2007 versus 2020. So for the record, I opened my first affiliate in 2007. Fern, when did you open yours? 2009. 2009? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yep, 2009. What would you say was the... When did CrossFit go, you know, mainstream? You know, there, there's always that expression, you know, you and I, actually, the one common bond that we have, the only thing we have in, in common, in fact, is our enjoyment of the Dave Matthews Band. That's a fair assessment. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think anyone that listens to a kind of a small band and watches them blow up and, and go places kind of gets frustrated. You know, it's like, oh, man, I used to be able to see them at this little dive bar and Dave knew who I was. Now I got to go to a 20,000-seat arena to see them. So that, for the Dave Matthews Band, was around 1996, Under the Table and Dreaming comes out, Ants Marching hits it big on the radio. But when do you think that was for CrossFit? I think like around 2012 is when it started to break on the scene. But if you look at the trends for for seminars and when seminars would were like um, started to pick up, it's 2013, 2014. That's what I think those I think those are like the highest numbers, I believe. So I suppose you're you're saying it's what it's what we're basing it on is is really when you would say because 2013, 14, that seems late to me. That's why I said 2012, because that's when that's when the games started to really kind of get some traction. I believe 2012 is when they maybe 2011 when they went to Home Depot Center. No, I think 10. I think 2010, because that was with Austin. Austin's first year at the games, I don't know if you remember, wearing the all-white skins Oh yeah, I do outfit. Yeah. You know, I think that was 2010. And, you know, if you go back and watch that, there's like a dozen people in the, in the arena. The next year, it sold out. I remember watching it in our building. You know, Austin had just started coaching for us, and we kind of had it streaming from – it might have just been in like the journal at the time before it was on major, major channels. So, yeah, I, I guess I would equate it to when the general population began to realize they can do CrossFit. Yeah, that's why I say 2012. You know, like there was there was a ton of gyms at that point, and uh, and CrossFit was you know starting to seeing on major networks at that point. So I, by that standard, you know, I would just say it's mainstream. <clears throat> So people are commenting, by the way, this is the first time we've ever gone live to Facebook while recording the podcast. People are commenting about the Dave Matthews band, seeing them in Saratoga Springs. I saw them in, they played at University at Albany, my alma mater, 
you know, back when a hundred people would sign up and then, you know, the next year I had to go travel to like the Meadowlands for 70,000 people. And I think did, you were around then. What was your feeling as that was happening with CrossFit? You know, I don't know that I had a feeling. It was just, it was something that I was still kind of, it, it was all still very new. Like I, I was just like, it was cool. And that was literally it. It was cool. It was how I was training. I was, you know, it was my, it was my avenue or outlet for competition since I had left we know. at that point. We know you graduated D1. I wasn't going to say it, but you Naval did, Academy and that you're, the, you're, you're literally the only one that ever brings that up. I'm proud of you. I'm, you know, um, teammates with David Robinson. No, I was not teammates with David Robinson. Used to alley oop with him, right? Used to pass the ball. That is a total incorrect use of the term alley oop. <laughs> what are you drinking? That was as cringy as when somebody makes a reference to shooting a jump shot at the level one seminar, and they and they pantomime the jump shot, and I and inside my heart just melts because I'm just like, what? what are you doing right now? Like that is not how you shoot a jump shot. I do that every weekend for the medicine ball thing. Like watch me. Yeah. And then everybody's just like, what the fuck? And then no one opens their heads. Yeah. <laughs> what are you drinking right there? Is that coffee? Coffee. The, one of my members gave me this. It says stay off Fern's beverage. Oh, I like that. <laughs> and you got a Fern hat on. Look at you. You're it's a, a New Zealand all blacks hat. It's a New Zealand, New Zealand all blacks hat. You're a brand in and of itself. I'm I am a brand in and of itself. I'm considering getting a pour over setup. What do you think about that? Like buying a setup kit? Well, it's not really. I mean, you buy a gooseneck thing, you buy a Chemex, some filters. Uh, if, if by what do I think that you have plenty of time because you don't do shit, then yes, you should get a pour over setup. It's actually in an effort to be more efficient. Yeah. Is that is that what pour over is? More efficient? It's hipster. Did, did Todd some? Yeah, it's hipster for sure. It's definitely not more efficient. What's your coffee routine? How do you make your coffee in the morning? Uh, we just have a uh, like a Jura coffee maker. Is so that it's like a, a one shotter type thing. You could do one shot, two shots, one cup, two cups. You can steam it. You can do a bunch of different stuff. It was but, uh, we, but like a pod based system. No, no, no. It's uh, you put beans in it and it grinds. So it's 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 grinds to. What's the word I'm looking for? Your preference, like the based on what? Yeah, so it only it only grinds enough for what you're gonna make for coffee. Look at you, that Fernandez money man, that mansion in uh, Virginia Beach. You gotta no. So now that so now the Jura is an expensive coffee maker. I will tell you, I want to say it's like a thousand bucks, and this is ten years ago, so it's probably more than that now for the new ones. But the we got that for our wedding. So people are like, what do you want? And I was just like, you know, I want these super sick, you know, culinary knives and then gift cards. So we got like all these gift cards. To like, I forgot, like Bed Bath and Beyond, and all these other places, and then we bought this coffee maker, which we use, I don't know, a dozen times a day for the past ten years. So, so yeah, isn't it? We have the same thing. You know, you get all these things you don't need for your wedding, and I'm sure we're gonna get similar stuff for the baby. And then it's like one or two of those things you use every day. The rest kind of sit in your closet. Oh, I sent it. I sent a picture of it to Andrea Smith the other day because I we had we got some of her coffee from Misha's. So if you're in Alexandria, go to Misha's. But she uh, she was like, "What do you have beans or whatever?" And I sent it. She's like, "She's like, oh, that's a good coffee maker." And I was like, "All right, coming from coming from the lady with regard to coffee." I was like, "I feel better about myself." Well, when I'm staying at your house in a little while, I expect a strong, big cup of coffee. You are never welcome in my house. <laughs> so I'm staying in Logan's room. 
We're gonna have a good party, and then we're gonna just go just for the record, as a new dad, that sounded super creepy. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'll stay with Chappie. Yeah, yeah, it's not not any less creepy. <laughs> so, tell me about this. I, I'll go after you, but what do you think has been the biggest change for you as a coach from the day you opened in two thousand nine to two thousand and twenty? As a coach. Yeah, I want to talk about the differences in opening then. Obviously, that's the topic. But before we get to that, as a coach, where has your biggest evolution been? Oh, God, that is such a loaded question. I, I mean, the, the professionalism of what I do is probably like the, the broadest possible answer I could give to that, which in short is literally everything. I, I don't know that there's anything that I do the same that I did you know, 10 years ago. That was really bad. <laughs> I mean, let, let's assume we both improved as coaches. So when you say professionalism, do you just simply mean your ability to see and correct? Or do you truly mean like, okay, I don't curse as much. I'm more professional. All of it. Like that's what I said. There, there is literally, I use the word literally too much, but this, I, I do mean quite literally is there nothing the same about what I, other than maybe have fun. So I still have fun doing both, uh, you know, 10 years ago and today, but, but virtually everything else is, is completely different. How I approach it, how I prep for classes, the, my reason for being there and my understanding for my reason for being there, my intent to connect with people, how I go about structuring warmups and scaling and seeing and correcting. And I mean, you know, to, to steal uh, some words from Joe Gaines, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed of the coach I was 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I think recently I, I, I came home from coaching here at the box and I came home and I was just like, Roz, you know, oftentimes when I, when I get home from coaching, I'm like brain dead, but at the same time excited and want to talk about it. And I think the biggest evolution for me was, I would put it like this. In 2007, coaching was about me. In 2020, it's about everybody else. And, and, and part of that is, you know, Ross said this to me when I got home. She's like, you're just empathetic now. And yeah, it, you know, what I was getting at for me, it's kind of like the, the music analogy. Like, in two, this was, you know, I, I got into the Grateful Dead when I was a teenager, but it was like, there was a song called touch of gray that came out and it was the band's first number one hit. And it really took them from this band that people followed and, and had a deep devotion to, to people were hearing one song and that now all of a sudden they're showing up at the concerts and changing the entire culture of deadheads. And I was, you yeah. know, I was one of them to some extent. I was a teenager and I eventually really got into them and I can prove it by how much pot I smoked back in the day. But you know, you you same was true with Dave Matthews. Like the, the new wave of people that showed up and you're like, look, you know Ants Marching. You don't know Jimmy thing. You don't know, you know, the song that Jane likes. You don't know all of these, you know, deep cuts from their old albums. And the same was with true with kind of the way I treated CrossFit. Not that you didn't deserve to come in, but it was very much like this is CrossFit and this is how you do it. Yeah. If I was to really sum it up just very simply i just liked to work out when i first started i wasn't anything that would actually resemble a coach but now i'm a coach 
you know, people come to me for a whole host of reasons, you know, and that is what I consider to be a coach. Yeah, I think, and you still see that to this day, many of the newer coaches start because they're either good athletes and their box owners are like, hey, we need a new coach or they're good athletes. They enjoy the accolades and the recognition they're getting at the box and they want to take it to the, oh, the coaches get even more recognition where yeah. that's, that's not why you do it. But, you know, I, I came home the other day from coaching. I was just like really content with the fact that I was helping people, you know, not to be cliche, but have the best hour of their day. And that's what it's become, you know, less, you know, every box has the same cast of characters and, you know, there's always the person in the box that doesn't want to push hard. There's the, there's the person in the box that regardless of the movement, they grab 75 pounds, whether it's snatching, deadlifting, you know, or, you know, a Turkish getup. Like, this is the way that I use, you know, and, and in the past it would be, no, you don't understand. This is what you should be doing. This is how you should be getting it. This is the, you need to feel like you're going to die and throw up and, you know, all, all these things where now it's more like, what's going to make you feel good when you leave here? And, and I'm, I'm really rewarded by that. And I think if, if you're coaching in 2020, that's why you need to be doing this. No, I agree. I, I would say like, as far as my understanding, I, my probably the biggest gap or the biggest leap that I've made is a profound increase in my understanding of intensity. That's probably if I was to try to me like what measurement of anything that we were going to measure with regard to when I started CrossFit 10 years ago and then today, it is my understanding of that and how it works and how it should be handled. And that is probably, you know, what leads me to be, you know, a remotely mildly effective coach at this point. So, um, so now, now we're talking about coaching and the evolution of coaching. And I still think that's not at the point where everyone is. I think more and more coaches still need to get there. I still see coaches that, that do this thing and it's more about them than their members. But we talk about that in affiliate university. We talk about coaches development in affiliate university. Of course, you can reach out to us about that, but that's not what we're here to talk about right now. Let's talk about the difference in opening in 2007 or 2009 versus 2020. What are you smirking at? That's a, it's a funny thought. Um, Matt Miller put on here. It was like one of the recommendation use the leaf blower. Um, the uh, I, there's probably only one thing that's still the same. There's probably only one thing that's still the same about opening an affiliate ten years ago and and today, which is the application process. You have to take your level one and then you put an application. Everything else is different. You, you know the the economics of it is different. The how you structure it is different. There's almost nothing the same about it with the exception of the core principles of CrossFit. And even that to some degree has been, in my opinion, softly molded into, in a lot of areas to something that it's quasi not. You know, and, well, and the reason I wanted to, to have this topic today is because we had somebody, we've had multiple people, but just this morning we had another person reach out to us in regards to affiliate, affiliate university saying, Hey, I'm opening my box and I want you guys to, to be a part of this and, and help me get started. And that's really what would spark my interest because I think in 2007 and 2009, there just wasn't that opportunity. And I, 
there was no coaching of affiliates. There was, there was really, I remember when I opened, there was this dude, Jerry Hill. I want to say he was actually in Virginia. Do you know him? Jerry Hill? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. Old school, old school CrossFitter. But basically, you know, for, for those that are unaware, back in the day, there was an affiliate forum. And I mean, I think it was just a forum on CrossFit. And you would just, it, you know, I would relate it to like a, a fan club for, for a band. Like you find CrossFit and you start going on there. And when there were so few affiliates in 2007, I believe I was in the first 200 and you would say you're going to open and other affiliate owners would give you kind of their best practices, but they weren't really, you know, tried and true, you know, things that work. There weren't systems. No one was saying, Hey, by the way, you know, like I said, one of our, one of our new members of affiliate university owns a box with his father and his father's an accountant. And I said, that's one of the first pieces of advice I always give to new box owners, like get yourself an accountant because you're not doing that right. I had, I was having that conversation with somebody the other day and you know, they were doing what most people do when they get on the phone with us and, and, and they were kind of beating themselves up about that. And the, the theme was, I just need to, you know, we really need to get better about going through this every day, every week, every month to my, to which my response was, no, you don't. You need to understand what the accountant sends you so that you are competent enough to say that doesn't make sense. We need to, we need to have a discussion about that, but you absolutely should not be going through line item by line item. I mean, maybe at some point, but you should like, again, competence, not, not completely complete ownership of that with regard to your accounting, even if you're an accountant, I don't well, think you should do that. Well, yeah. Right. Even, you know, we, we spoke about that on a recent episode where we said, what do, what do box owners need to give up first? And, and that's one of those things. If you're hiring a professional, give that up, like hire someone you trust, you know, maybe look at the numbers, have, have a vague idea of, okay, we grossed X, we spent this, I should have this much money left. It makes sense that I'm paying this much in taxes. But other than that, if you're paying for an accountant, yeah, you don't need to have a, you know, a credits and debit sheet that you're doing to double check this account. No, what you need to have in that scenario and, and all of the other tasks and responsibilities that you give up is a means to, to have oversight and to check what is being done. So we've said this before, and again, we're huge fans of Insight Tax and what John Briggs and the team there does, he, like they're my accountants, they send me a... a a report, they send me a, a slew of reports every month. They send me PL, balance sheet, comparative balance sheets, PLs, and then they send me unknown transaction lists in there too, so that I can go through and tell them what that transaction was for, you know, all of that stuff. But I have oversight of it. And if I look at the PL or I look at the balance sheet, or there's a weird transaction in there that neither one of us know, then we can have a conversation about it. But I'm not going through that anymore. Now, there was a time when I did that and I was doing, I was a lot more involved in it but I don't need to be as involved in it anymore. Like that's what I've hired them for. Do you think if there was the opportunity to sign up with something like affiliate university in 2009, you would have been smart enough to do it. And I don't mean it in a way like, you know, in, in a, in a goofy way, I simply mean do box owners realize even to this day in 2020 that they need a coach. 
The short answer is no, I would not have. What other business are people opening without a mentor? Is that common? I don't know. I mean, most of my businesses have been in the fitness world and I'm pretty experienced, but if I were going to open a coffee shop, I just, I just wouldn't have understood the value of it, you know, because I would have been like most of us. No, I don't really need that. I'm fine. I'll figure it out, but not understanding the true complexity of running a business, but more importantly, running a successful business. Like what are the pillars of a successful business that I need to, to, to be able to really highlight as now the business owner and what is important and what is not important because there was things 10 years ago that I thought were important that are not at all important. You know, like the Instagram post you put up yesterday, they got people's panties and a bunch about programming. You yeah. Know, I, I thought 10 years ago, I thought programming was the, was the thing I thought it was, it was just literally people. You, like, I write these programs and it's I mean, what separates sh- me from the box. separates me from everybody. And now I mean, we definitely don't do this, but if we were to just, you know, actually program via the hopper, nobody would know any different. Well, and honestly, part of the reason I put that up is because I'm going to the box here. You know, they follow uh, professional programming, meaning they pay for it. But I look at it, I analyze it, and I'm like, sometimes this is really, really stupid. Like, I, So, yeah, I, don't, I definitely don't want this to be – it's not – there, there's a there's a fine line when having this discussion about programming, which is, yes. I'm not saying programming is not important. That is not at all what I'm saying. So if that is what you're taking away from any of the posts that we make, that programming doesn't matter. Um, that you've you've missed you've missed the point. Yes, it's meant to be controversial. Like that's the whole point of all this. But it's what we're trying to really bring light to is that it takes a back seat, if not a back back seat to almost everything else with regard to customer service, how you coach, how you interact with your athletes. It, it's it's one of the least important things that matters in your gym. And right. I think Pat I think Pat Barber has said this very well, which is, you know, a great coach can do a lot with really poorly written programming. But a terrible coach can't do anything with really well written programming. It that doesn't matter. You know, it, it's your ability to use the tool that matters, not not the tool. Yeah, and I, you know, and and to piggyback on that, yes, really bad programming can actually be dangerous, right? If you're hinging every day right. or you're pulling every day, etc. We're saying, assuming you're, you know, just like with coaching, safety is the number one priority. Crappy programming doesn't matter, and in fact, I would argue ninety-five percent of your members would prefer programming that was quote-unquote fun, like, oh, that looks like a fun one. 100%. You know, then then dumb stuff, or it doesn't matter to them. But I, no, So I don't want to go on this huge tangent about programming, but this is, it's also, it's very similar to functional movements. You know, we, so we talk about in the What is CrossFit lecture, we say, hey, functional movements are safe. Even when done poorly, they're really, really safe. <laughs> you know, even when done poorly, they're very, very safe because of the nature of functional movements. Programming, if applied with the principles of variance, is really, really hard to do poorly. So you gave the example of like we hip hinge every day. Well, that would not that is a perfect example of not applying variance. If I am am applying variance to my program, even if I had no idea what I was doing, it would be very, very hard to create the level of redundancy 
and overuse pattern that would result in injury. It would be very, very hard to do. Yeah, if you just took the simple old level one, like GWM programming and rotated couplets, triplets, chippers, et cetera, and adjusted the time, the time domains, you'd be fine. But point is, it doesn't matter. And, you know, part of the, you know, two reasons I thought about it was because I look at some of the programming we hit, which again, we pay for it. A lot of people know what we follow, but I don't want to put them on blast here. And I'm like, this is dumb. Like, this doesn't make sense to me as someone that's done this a long time, but I still do it. And I see all of these people that show up and get better. Todd and I have spoken about it many times. We're like, even terribly executed CrossFit yields crazy results. That's why it's so potent. So, so going back to just the opening in 2007, there was no rogue fitness. I was either piecemealing together my equipment from, I don't know if you knew this guy, Christian's fitness factory on eBay. I've heard of it. Uh, but yeah, it, I never bought anything from there, but I know what you're talking about. Well, by the time you open, there's probably a few things, but I was buying those like single squat stands because yep. there was no written. And then at the end of every night, you had to kind of like Tetris them together in the corner to minimize how much floor space they were taking. I mean, it was still hard to get equipment at that point, 2009. I mean, like you, like Pendelay was on the scene, but I mean, it was, you, it still was limited. You know, Rogue was not really a thing at that point. I think they might have been doing like some ones and twos here and there, but I mean, it wasn't. They mostly they were reselling. Again, faster was kind of on the scene a little bit. That, that's who I wound up using a lot. That's a lot you... of resale stuff, but like, the, it's amazing. It based on the lack of resources for that for that business, a, a CrossFit box. I would. There's a strong argument that it was impossible to run something that would truly be resembled that would truly resemble a successful business. Yeah, I mean, how many successful businesses <laughs> I had, like, I, you know me, I know nothing about home improvement, and I'm putting up pull-up bars, and I remember there was one, one time where we, I didn't realize, so I was drilling, you know, I was on a racquetball court, drilling into cinder blocks, not making the connection that these things were hollow in, in the middle, right? I'm like, oh, I'm just drilling into concrete, and then I realized, shit, that. So things are like moving around, like they're anchored in, but they're loose. I was holding the pull-up bar up, you know? So yeah, like how, how do you expect to open a gym on 800 square feet in the mid middle of a dilapidated old racquetball facility and grow? Well, turns out if it's yielding results, you can grow. Then I tell you, I think it was last year at the games, Bill Henniger came up to me and he was like, you know, we've known each other a long time. He's like, are you body by Jay, by the hey, way? Listen, Can I tell you this story? Listen, I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to take a pause here for a second because for as much as you like to give me shit about talking about playing division one athletics, which I don't ever bring up, you always bring up, you've told this story no less than 4,385 times. <laughs> it's, it's worth telling. It's worth like that's yeah. why you're so, like my grandfather every time he's just like oh i don't know if i've ever told you this story and i'm like only 48 million times <laughs> yeah but you know what just like your grandfather just indulge me let me tell the story for the listeners that, that that haven't heard but he came up to me christian commented that i bring it up a lot no one asked you christian so i was at the games and he's like are you body by jay 
And I was like, yeah, why? He was like, you were our third order ever. So pretty cool that he remembers that. And to this day, I mean, is Rogue Fitness not the most impressive company you've ever seen? It's, they should do a documentary on Bill and Katie and what they've done. I think they would if Bill cared to be in the public eye. By the way, everybody should follow his Instagram. You'll get hungry. Just the amount of food that that guy posts on his Instagram. You would never know what he does for a living. His, you would think he was a chef. <laughs> what does he have? A Traeger? I want to get a Traeger. He has everything. He, ha- he has things that he made that he cooks meat in. I mean, he just like he has like the most robust cooking ensemble I've ever seen in my life. Imagine you're as smart as Bill Henniger. And, you know, 2006, seven rolls along and you have this engineering degree and you, you know, you probably spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in education and your, your parents are like ready for you to get this real nice cush job. And you're like, no, mom, I'm going to make gymnastic rings. I'm going to make barbells, mom. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, our son's a loser. What a waste of time and money. You know, meanwhile, they own Ohio now. So yeah, it's, that's probably that's probably not even a stretch. They probably do actually own Columbus at this point. From what I understand, that area where they um, their new compound is, they basically bought it all. I don't know. I, how think, true I, that I know is. they've I know they've purchased multiple city blocks and employ a huge percentage of that local population. Yeah, I mean they're just impressive and they're good people. They're just great people. So yeah, you're talking about people that are running. I don't know what their their business worth, but it's a lot. Who still. At the games, you're going to see one of them walking around with a hammer or a drill. Oh, Katie walks around with a helmet on the whole yeah. weekend for hammering shit. And and here's the other funny part. No one realizes she won the CrossFit Games in 2000. I know. I know. No one makes that connection. Like, no one looks up to uh, even she, knows that. She also was a Division One. She was. Re- she was. Where'd she play? Ohio State? Ohio State, yeah. Yeah, she's legit. She she's- might. She might be in the Hall of Fame there. I might have just made that up, though. Well, if you know, if she is, it's deserved. But anyway, so yeah, we we I think we bought their rings, and then again, Faster came out, and I knew John Gilson. So, and they were a Northeast company, and you know, there's a reason Rogue Fitness we're talking about, and we're not talking about again Faster. <laughs> one one time, a barbell breaks. One of each. Like I had, you know, at this point, a kind of hodgepodge of barbells. The rogue barbell breaks, call them up. They legit new barbell like the next day. My again faster bar breaks. They sent me like the bearings to it, and I'm like, "What the fuck do I do with this? Like, what? What? You know?" And like, how, how do I even take the sleeve off this thing? Yeah. So anyway, what what were some of the other big factors that you think have changed for you? Eleven years later, I know a handful of other ones for me, but what else would you say changed from 2009 to 2020? Just the service aspect of it, top to bottom. I mean, anything that involves service, that 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 has all evolved. I mean, light years. Just, I mean, if you think about most, there there was not there was no such thing as a nice gym back in the day. You, I, from from an aesthetic standpoint, like no gym you walked into, you're like, oh, this this place is pretty. It's pristine. It's clean. Everything was a dungeon back in the day. Do you remember the first box you went to where you thought this is nice? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't. Um, CrossFit Virginia Beach was not was not not nice, but it was a warehouse just like everything else. That was Sherwood's box originally, or Tony? Yeah, Powers? that's 
So no, so that was Sherwood's box. So there was um so he owned CrossFit Virginia Beach and then Tony Blower was in in the area and he had a place over off of Viking Drive, which is over by Lynn Haven, which is probably like 15, 20 minutes from here. And he had that trip that training facility and that was called what was that called? It was like I forget what it was called, but CrossFit Obsession was out of there, which was Brendan Gilliam and Allison. Allison. Uh, NYC. Yeah, whatever her last Allison name is. Allison NYC. Around Vegas now. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> right. There's like so some they, crazy story about them for... packing their stuff up and like leaving overnight. Uh, yes. I, and I don't think that story is inaccurate. However, I cannot confirm it. The But yeah, there was some real, there was some weird stuff that happened there. But anyway, so that was the, it was like the tactical training center, the, the like VT, something like that. I don't remember what it was, but it was this massive facility where he taught combatives, but they had all the equipment there. They hosted most of the level ones in Virginia beach there. I mean, it was a massive, so it was probably 20,000 square feet inside and he had like octagon and all sorts of other stuff in there. And then 2009 regionals was there. Well, you know, and I think it just goes to show the growth of CrossFit. I, I think and I've heard Coach Glassman actually say this story where, you know, TJ Cooper from, from Jacksonville is really the, was the catalyst behind having seminars. He, he was using CrossFit, training his police officers, and I think he reached out to Glassman and was like, hey. CrossFit, you- CrossFit East. <laughs> right. So that's the point. He 2002. Out- I've got that t-shirt, by the way. Yeah, he reaches out to Glassman. He's like, hey, we need to get certified or whatever. And there was nothing. And then so Glassman puts this training together. Just just so give to give reference, like how early this was in the game. So now everybody's like, I can't have zip codes or city names anymore. Meanwhile, TJ Cooper had a cardinal direction behind his like he had like literally one of the four options on a compass. He must fit east. You know. You know, That's how early that guy was. And you talk about good human beings. TJ Cooper is one of them. Oh, he's amazing. But he, you know, so I, the story is Coach Glassman's like, huh. And he kind of hangs up the phone and he's like, you know, whichever wife he was with at the time was like, you know, we're going to have five affiliates one day. We're going to have, you know, CrossFit HQ and then North, South, East, West. You know, then, and I think that goes to show like the Virginia Beach place was kind of their like, idea of like this will be the main one on the east coast and this will mm-hmm. be the main one so I, I think the first box that i went to where i was like this is interesting was south brooklyn the first seminar in new york state was at crossfit south brooklyn in 2008 and i i interned at it and was that coach, their was that the same facility they have now no this was like i mean david osorio could, i think we talked about it on our interview with him but it was like basically in a music hall, like a recital center. And then the upstairs was like where the bands and whatnot would play. And then you go downstairs and it was his facility, but it, it was just huge and it was unique. It was kind of like King of Prussia. I was going to, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like it was like an old movie theater versus, you know, this, it was just showing like, Hey, we can put these in weird places. And, you know, I think that was like, wow, this is big and it's, it's really nice. And as I would visit newer boxes in eight, nine, 10, 11, you also started to see the trend of, they all had new equipment, all the equipment matched, you know, for, mm-hmm. it took me five or six years to the point that I got rid of all the old stuff. Right. You know, I had, 
I was telling that a teen, we had a teenager in, um, in class the other day and she was on a model D rower, you know, the blue ones. Yeah. She goes, I don't want to use the old one. I was like, old one. I had a model B it was wood. It didn't come apart. Like you couldn't stand it up. Like that that's old. Like that was like one of those, like, you know, I'm, I'm officially old now, but yeah, I mean, we, we bought a model B off of Craigslist and, Model B. I think I had a Model C here for a while that people really got butthurt about when I, I sold it. They're like, don't get like rid of same. old glory. No, C C had like a really really old um, monitor on it. Oh yeah, uh, the monitor. Yeah, the the, the model. And yeah, then the the, 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 the handle the handle was wooden on the Model C. The uh, the flywheel was totally different on there. Yeah, I mean it was a but that thing's still the only thing that ever went wrong with that thing was the monitor. Yeah, you can replace that easily. The yeah. they have like they have an adapter, so like if you have one of those, you can just buy like a PM five monitor and put it on an old Model C if you want to. Yeah, the Model B was wooden foot pads, you know, so it was wood, um, and it didn't come apart. You couldn't even you couldn't stand it up. So you have to, we're in eight hundred square feet, and I always had to have this rower down, like no matter what the workouts were. But but to your point. It's probably still working somewhere. Whoever bought it oh, from me, the 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 quality of the equipment they make is kind of mind blowing with regard to C two. Did like, I explain my story about uh, the owner of Concept two? Probably, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll save it for another time. Yeah. I'll save it. Um, yeah, but the uh, one of the big, I think the biggest thing is there's a couple of things. You know, the the whole professional the whole professionalization of cross. But I, you know, even as early as 2010, I really don't think m the vast majority of people got into that thinking that that was an actual true profession that you can make a living in. I don't think that happened for a couple of years after like probably early teens where people were like, oh, I can, I can make a legit living doing this. But that means they were up and running for a decade Honestly, prior to anybody being like, oh, I could actually pay my mortgage doing this. I honestly believe to this day people are opening boxes with that mindset. I we've had quite, we've had people on affiliate you consultation calls say things like, you know, I don't want to become a millionaire, you know, blah blah blah. I'm like, well, guess what? You're not with that mindset. And I, you know, I, I was talking to somebody last week who said, you know, really not. It's not about making money. And I said, well, then you're not going to make any money. Yeah, yeah, it's about, like I get it. Like you and I do this. We're on a podcast. It's a Sunday afternoon. We, we, we're taking calls every day for affiliate you. We love it. But don't get us wrong. Like, you have two kids. I have a kid on the way. We like eating dinner. Like, you know, you need to be doing this. If you're opening a business, I, I love the fact that it's passion-driven first, but you need to be wanting to make money. So I'm on this call, and I'm like, yeah, I get it. When I opened in 2007, my goal, my true goal was to make $24,000. I was like, if I make $2,000 a month, I'm fucking rich. Like, this is amazing. Right. Like, cause I was making less than that, busting my ass. So I'm like, if I can be at one place all day, doing what I love, I can work out, you know, and flash forward, I, I sell the box for, you know. 15 years later, you still haven't made $2,000 a month. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting closer, but you know, that's where my mindset has, has certainly shifted. You, you have to be 
knowing and wanting to make money in this business for well, sure. Well, I, I, there's a, I get it. So CrossFitters are super passionate. They're, they're for whatever reason, almost, almost entirely and universally benevolent in nature. They're just givers by, by just the virtue of, of opening a CrossFit gym. And I think there's a, this massive disconnect, which is going back to the professionalization of CrossFit, but you, you cannot, I, I am not aware of a scenario where I can run something in a highly professional manner while absent of the idea of making money. Right. So if, if your mindset is in fact, I'm not really worried about making money, then I, I am willing to bet large sums of money of J's that you are not making money. Well, because if you feel that way, you're not doing the things necessary. I get what you're saying. You know, you're not putting systems in place. You're, you're not spending money to hire a VA. So you have more time to do other more important things that you need to be doing. You're, you're it's a, treating it's a it flawed like a hobby. thought. Yeah. It's, it's a, a flawed thought. It's a flawed thought. It's just like, Oh, I can do this really, really, really well, but not really worry about making money. And my counter argument to that is like, no, you can't. Like, there's, I, I'm not aware of anything else. But even in the nonprofit world, if you're talking about like, you know, the really good nonprofits that are doing a lot of things, nonprofit, the name is deceiving. They're running a profit. They just don't pay taxes on that. But the ones that do that run very professionally and make a boatload of money. And if they're doing it right, they give away a boatload of money or give away a lot of services. So that, that the, the mindset is flawed is that I, is for whatever reason that I can't be both pragmatic and customer service oriented at the same time is that I oh just listen, if I'm going to be all about the customer, then money has to be an afterthought. No, it doesn't. And I think that's an either good to great or built to last is that they talk about the friction between those two ideas and that they don't, they can coexist. And if done really well, they it's it's necessary that they coexist. Yeah, I think any box that's doing it well is is finding that balance of I still enjoy being here and then making good money. Right. You know, and, and you know, so Christian's asking on um, Facebook. He yeah, says, I saw that. You know, and you kind of alluded to it, but because of the uptick in professionalism, do you think the days of hole in the wall gyms is going away? You know, it's kind no. of different than what you just alluded. You, I don't think so because hole in the wall doesn't insinuate not run well. Like how many, like how many hole in the wall bars or restaurants have you been to that hole in the wall in my mind just means it's not really well known. That's not on the underground. Path. It's underground. Right. But, but these places are places that once people find out about it, they seek it out and they go there because it is an amazing experience for whatever reason, you know? So I, I think even that, that even there's a slight disconnect because hole in the wall does not, in my, at least in my opinion, does not insinuate that it's not a well-run business. It just means it's not, I guess, mainstream, but that's not even the right terminology I'm looking for. You know, or it's not um, in an outdoor mall area where, right. where people are going to drive by you know, and you're going to get a lot of foot traffic going by. People might have to hear about it and, and seek you out. But I mean, quite frankly, my gym is kind of a hole in the wall. And, and when, and I don't like, so it's bigger, right? So we have 11,000 square feet here, but we have people that come in here still on the regular that will come in and tell me, I, I've been here for, I've been working right down the street for a decade and had no idea that you were here, you know? And that's, yeah. And that doesn't mean I agree with what you're saying. And 
that doesn't mean you could be the most professional restaurant with your servers wearing, you know, black tie apparel and serving, you know, five-star cuisine, but in some, you know, quote unquote hole in the wall in Manhattan or wherever. I mean, listen, let's just take that idea. I think you, I think it would, I think you should be the hole in the wall place that crushes it. That, that runs an outstanding. So there's a restaurant here in Virginia Beach that's called Steinhilbers. It's been here for something to the tune of like a hundred years. Most people don't know it's here, but it is a super high end restaurant. It, it's it's back in the back of a neighborhood on the water, and they do an astronomical astronomical amount of business out of that place. Right? I mean, it it is top notch in every sense of the word, but it, but it would still be considered a hole in the wall because people come here or I know people that have been here forever and, I'll, and they're like, where's a good place to eat? I'm like, have you ever been to Steinies? And I'm like, never heard of it. I'm like, perfect. Here you go. Well, and you know, when you, when you think about hole in the wall, you also think about what's well, probably a little cheaper in rent. And I think, you know, going back to our conversation about opening and maybe I just think, I think unique. Sure. But you know, 2007 versus 2020 boxes were, more likely to open in some obscure place like I did. My first rent check was for $850 for a racquetball court. And had I tried to, I remember trying to hire my, my buddy who was a real estate agent. And I was like, Barry, I need you to find me a place to open the gym. And he was like, dude, go ask Shy, the owner of the building, to rent a court. Like no one's using it. And you know, you just, I didn't think that way. And had I not done that, I don't know that I would have been successful because not having stress about paying rent or not that I didn't pay rent, but not having this looming thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollar payment every month allowed me to really slow grow and do it the right way. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I, and there's, there's still some places where you can do that. I, I've talked to some gym owners where they tell me, you know, we got one in affiliate use. Just like, I think she, I think she said, my overhead is fifteen hundred bucks total. <laughs> and I was like, "Don't ever change, Pony Boy." I was like, you know, <laughs> yeah. just keep that forever because that's a that's a fantastic model, and it doesn't mean that you can't run an amazing business or charge the value that it's worth. And I think that's actually one of the problems happening in this day and age is because CrossFit has you know, become a little more professionalized. We have that, you know, similar to Christian's question, we have that belief like, oh, now I need to look more professional. And that means having a more upscale, more uh, easily available storefront and buying fancy equipment and, and doing all these fancy things where at, at the end of the day, people are coming to you because they have a problem and they don't give a shit where you're located if you solve that problem. We had a member who just moved away she's been with us forever i mean if you look like if in virginia beach virginia beach is really big so i think it's the largest city per square mile in the united states but you could easily drive 40 minutes still be in virginia beach so she moved clear across town she went to another gym and she said it's great but i think i'm gonna make the 35 minute drive back there because i just miss it and i was like that's that's what that's what we should all be striving for that 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 doesn't have anything to do with being a hole in the wall or how nice my equipment is. That has to do with giving a crap and really, really providing people with what is the best hour of their day. And this is where I think people are are, are 
uh, because there's a little bit of a shift with people moving away from CrossFit to these other models and, 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 you know, for whatever reason, doesn't matter. I, I would describe them as low skill models, meaning like the skill required to coach some of these models is very, very low. Like, um, and in doing so, it's starting to resemble more of these chain fitness industries that, that lacks connection and to each their own. I'm not mad at anybody for doing that, but you're giving up the one thing that makes CrossFit, not the one thing, one of the, the core pillars of what makes CrossFit unique. And that is your, that is your major strength is that you're going to have a deep connection with these people. And if you move to some of these other models, these when these people move across town, they're not going to come back. They're not going to make the 35 minute drive because there was nothing there. It was just a place where they exercised. Yeah, and those are the people that think programming is the number one thing. If, if, if that's the case, like I said, your members don't care about that. And, you know, maybe to start wrapping up this episode, I think some of the biggest changes from 2007 to 2020 are some of these realizations of one, this has to be about members first. And two, we need to professionalize this and have some systems in place. And to this day, so many boxes just don't have that. They don't have the systems in place. I mean, I remember going from a notebook collecting payments via cash or check to mind body online to Wattify and other things. And that was kind of like my first uh, entry into systems. And then I realized, I mean, eventually I had an HR handbook and, you know, they, they were hiring and firing and, and review sheets and everything. And I think that's what people need to start to, that's where the big shift has become over these last 13 years. And there's a lot of pitfalls that come with that because you're, you're talking about services that cost money. So again, it's this weird, it's, it, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, which is like, okay, well, I'm not, I don't, I'm not getting this to make money, but if I do want to become professionalism, now I got to spend money, which then requires that I actually make money. And then, so this becomes a, a bit problematic for a lot of gym owners because now they don't actually know where to spend their money, which is, which is something that we will talk about a later podcast, but where should you invest your money? Do you know how to bootstrap certain things and still provide the same value to the customer where they don't know if you use some high-end CRM or if you're using a spreadsheet? The, the reality is it doesn't matter which one you use. The only thing that matters is what does it feel like to the end user? And having been through, you know, I, I've, I was thinking about this earlier today. I've probably failed at more things than most gym owners have tried in their lifespan. Same. I think you and I, we've talked about this in a previous episode where you asked about all the mistakes. We've made them all. So th there's, there's definitely some ways you can help people with like, Oh, should I pay all this money for this? And my, my, there's always counter questions there, which is, are you profitable? Is that where you should be spending your money? All of these things, because you can do kind of the, in air quotes, low rent features of all of these things that would be wildly effective because it's going to force you to pay more attention to it. You know, that, that's the downfall of automation is that I can take my hands off of it and then it loses the, the personal touch to it. But there's, there's a lot of ways you can bootstrap many of these things and, and actually provide a better product. And then as you scale up, then you actually need to put better systems, more automation. Um, and I, I hate the word automation, but like just, you know, more systematic technology behind certain things, certain things. And, uh, and that's part of what we help people with in affiliate you, but that, that, that's definitely, uh, uh, un, what would I, how would I describe this? That is definitely a pitfall that a lot of people are not aware of. 
is when you do start to scale up, there's some problems with that, which is like, you're going to end up, you know, you t- I think, I think I talked about it with um, Corey, who was on the, who's with uh, the gym uh, um, solutions. You're talking about your software stack. If you start putting all these things together, that is my software stack, meaning like your Wattify, your scheduling, your backend CRM, MailChimp, all these other, you're talking, you could be talking about on the high end, the six, seven, eight hundred, a thousand dollars for a software stack that quite frankly, you don't need and can't afford. Yeah. And it, you know, the analogy I would use is we all have hobbies where we probably buy the equipment that is beyond our ability. You know, you play tennis and you buy that $500 racket where really you would be just as fine with that $30 racket from Target or, you know, Dick's Sporting Good. And, and the same is true here. I mean, you had a conversation as have I with box owners where like, all right, I'm thinking about expanding. And we're like, whoa. Yeah, like that's a terrible decision. Like not that expanding is always bad, but have you thought about the ramifications? Have you thought about what you can, and we'll talk about this in a future episode because I expanded as have you numerous times, but whether or not it's actually the right time to do it. I have talked many, many people off the ledge of expanding because they don't need to. And I wish I would have, you know, spoken to you about it in 2000. I expanded for the first time in 2008, which was necessary, but then, you know, a few more times beyond that where I was like, maybe, or opening my second and third affiliate, whether or not you should do that. So, you know, we've run the gamut of a lot of the changes from 2007 to 2020. I think we both agree the number one uh, evolution in CrossFit has been the professionalism of both the box owner and the coach. And if you're listening to this and you're either a box owner or a coach, you should be doing this because you want to be paid. You want to make the money you deserve and you need to value yourself. And for so many people, we just don't value ourselves. Ah, we're just a coach. No big deal. Well, I've, I've this, and with all the people that say that my, my kind of immediate response to that is passion has a shelf life. I don't care how passionate you are at some point that passion runs dry. You know, obviously the timeline for some people is longer than others, but it has a shelf life. And if, it, and if, if you truly love CrossFit, you should do everything to keep that passion. And that's going to involve running a profitable business that allows you to help more people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great way to, to wrap it up. The evolution from 2007 to 2020, we are best hour of their day. We're your host, Jason Ackerman, Jason Fernandez. If you have questions for us that you'd like to see answered on the podcast, what I don't like say? how you're. I was like, I don't like how you're referring to me as Jason Fernandez. Like that's. Would that's you prefer? That's your name. No, my name is Fern. It is my, weird that we're both Jasons because sometimes people get confused when they message us. But you go by Fern. You want right. me to say it? So it sounds weird to say I'm Jason Ackerman and he's Fern. Like it sounds pretentious. Like you're Cher or Madonna. I mean, you, you are pretentious, but that's that's. You're, but it sounds pretentious about you. That's my nickname. I can't change that. Do you want me to go it's, by Ackerman? Like, I'm Ackerman, he's Fern? I want you to go by whatever you want to go by. I want to go by Fern, too. You can't do that. <laughs> All right. Well, if you have questions for Fern or for Ackerman, email us, besthouroftheirday at gmail.com. If you're a box owner and you want more information about Affiliate University, also use that same email, day at gmail.com. We booked up all of our phone calls. So if you go on Calendly, you can still book a call, but it's going to be deep into January. 
feel free to do that. But if you want to get on a call with us sooner than later and become one of our first members in our alpha class, is it the alpha class firm? Uh, you just made that up just now. Yeah. First cohort. Whatever. Yeah. First. If you want to, if you want to be our first group, going we're going to call them. We're going to call them the big winners. If you want to be a big winner and go through it, and, and you know, in the new iteration of Affiliate University, then the the next and greatest version of it, hit us up best hour of their day at gmail.com. Until then, uh, we'll see you on the next episode. So you never miss an episode of the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and on all major podcasting platforms at best hour of their day. Thank you so much for tuning in and for being a part of the best hour of our day. See you next time.